I'd like to cover some objections and misunderstandings. Objections, misunderstandings, misconceptions that people have on this topic. I have several of them, and a few of them will overlap with what Jerry has just said, so I, I may go faster on those same topics. The first objection, that's not my God. My God would never expect me to pray that way or do such a thing. That's not my God. Well, a, a brief rebuttal on each of these objections. Well, we need to see what the Bible says about God and make sure that the God that we are worshiping is the God of the Bible. If we say something about God, we must make sure that it conforms to what the Bible says about God and not just blurt out that that's not my God. My God would never do that. And if so, if we don't control ourselves and make sure we have a proper conception of God, we are worshiping an idol. Uh, worshiping an idol. And the first of the three, uh, uh, the first three of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20 explain that we should not have any other God besides the Lord. We should not make for ourselves an idol, and we should not take the name of the Lord in vain. That means don't use the name of the Lord in any wrong way. So don't say God or my God when you don't understand who that God is. A second objection is people will say, that's not fair. That's unjust. Yeah, what about being equitable and understanding in those situations? That's not fair. Here too, what is fairness? What is justice? What does it mean to treat one another properly? We cannot have our own ideas of that. We cannot have the world's idea of that. We have to have the biblical idea of that. Seek in the Bible for what true justice is. Not only what true justice is, but what true love is, or any other topic that might present itself to us that we might have an objection to. We have to see what the Bible says on what justice is and what fairness is. A third objection is that it is unloving, as I just said. People will say, that's unloving, it's un unkind, it's ungracious to pray like that. Well, then, go to the Bible and see what true love is. We say in, in society, especially in the raising of children, that there must be tough love, right? People think that there is a proper place for tough love among children. So if that's valid and that helps to raise a, a proper family, at least a family with some rule and law and order in the family, if not a Christian family, to practice tough love, if tough love is good and it's beneficial to us, why can't there be a proper understanding of love that we can derive from the Bible? Not from popular sayings, not from bumper stickers, not from what pe uh, preachers teach from the pulpit in order to get a big crowd coming to their churches. Not according to that kind of love. People also on the topic of love will say, love is unconditional. Love never turns anyone away. It's unconditional and it never turns anyone away. We will see in another session that the perfect picture of love, Jesus Christ himself, our Lord Jesus Christ, demonstrates time and again, we will see in the book of Matthew, time and again, that he does not practice unconditional love. And Jesus does turn people away. He does turn people away at times. It depends on the situation. So unconditional love and never turning people away is not something that the Bible teaches. 
A fourth objection people have is that this is only in the uh, Old Testament. We should only do this, or they only did this in the Old Testament. The New Testament is different because the Old Testament has a different God. It has a different set of ethics. It allows people to hate one another, but not in the New Testament. We, we serve the God and Father of Christ in the New Testament, and we have a higher supreme ethic, more sophisticated ethic than the ethic of the Old Testament. And therefore, in this ethic of the New Testament, only love. Love dominates and love is front and center in every and ev- all circumstances 100% of the time. Love, love, love. That's the attitude. That's the misconception, however. It says in Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Also, the Bible speaks of the law of Christ. The law of Christ. Well, the law of Christ has an association of ethics attached to that law. And the law of Christ, and this is why in this conference we have focused on the New Testament to see what the New Testament says about the law of Christ. How did Christ expect us to behave toward one another? What kind of desires should we have toward one another? And how should we pray for one another and even against one another? Depends on the circumstances. A fifth objection. People say, judge not. Do not judge lest you be judged. We're not supposed to condemn anyone. After all, none of us are perfect. None of us are perfect. So why should we judge somebody else? We're no better than they are. You know, I'm as, uh, as bad a sinner as my neighbor is. So it does, why should I ever pray anything against him? Because we don't want them to pray that against us. So I won't pray that against them. However, this judge not expression comes from Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. And this is misquoted. It's misinterpreted. When Jesus said, judge not, he said, lest you be judged, for in your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Then he says, you hypocrites, first take the log that's in your own eye, and then you will see clearly enough to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. There, in that context, when he says judge not, he means do not have a hypocritical judgment. Do not be a hypocrite. If you see somebody who is a drunkard, but you are also a drunkard, you cannot point out that he is a drunkard and that he's going to hell because of his drunkenness, because you yourself are a drunkard. So, repent of your own sin of drunkenness and then go help out your neighbor who's a drunkard and help him get out of that. That's the point Jesus makes. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. And as for this notion that we're no better than anybody else, this is not true. This is not true. The Bible does speak of degrees of evil. There are degrees of evil expressed in the Bible. An example of this is John 19, 11, when Jesus is before Pilate, Pontius Pilate, who's about to order for his execution, the Roman the Roman governor of of the province, he there, Jesus says to him, he who delivered me up to you has the greater sin. Well, who delivered Jesus up to Pilate? Pilate was just a, a pagan official, Roman official. He didn't know all the particulars of what was going on. He knew the people who were conspiring and they were accusing him of this and that. He knew that, but he didn't know all of the particulars of what Jesus did or or did not do during his ministry. The people 
the religious officials, the mob, Judas Iscariot, others, they were complicit. They all, in one way or another, delivered Jesus over to Pilate. They knew they had greater knowledge and therefore greater guilt. That's why Jesus said, he who delivered me up to you has the greater sin. So all sins and are not of the same level. We all understand that it is wrong and sinful to steal a pencil. But isn't it more wrong and sinful to steal a person, to kidnap a person? Yes, we understand that. The, law, the laws of our country understand that. Therefore, in the sight of God, the judge of heaven, his laws are also that way, and it's not true. We're all not on the same level. Yes, we all sin, and we're all worthy of death, but we don't commit the same severity of sins. I don't in comparison to my neighbor. It doesn't make me any better in the sight of God. I still need Christ and, my, and redemption in Christ, but it still does help me to understand how should I behave towards my neighbor. I should want the murderer or the kidnapper of a person, him, to have a severe penalty than somebody who steals a pencil. They all should have uh, some penalty, but one's condemnation is greater than another. A sixth misunderstanding is that people are good. People say of one another, people are good and neutral. They're good. They're born good. They're born with a clean slate. And it's just the environment that corrupts them and misleads them. But they are naturally, at birth, they're good and fine people. That's the way people are. Well, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible actually teaches that there is no one who is good, not even one. Romans 3, verses 9 to 18, explain clearly that we are all corrupt and depraved. And Ephesians 2, 1, we are dead in trespasses and sins. We're born that way, and we continue that way until we are redeemed in Christ. This is the nature of man. We're not good, and people aren't neutral. There are sinners and who love their sin, who need to be confronted with their sin and Imprecatory prayers are one means of confronting their sin. Number seven, people say that uh, everybody has good intentions. Nobody is malicious. Nobody is malicious or devilish. They're all, you know, they all have good intentions about what they want to do. So you can't judge them because we can't judge motives. Listen, we can judge motives in many, many circumstances. If there's somebody with a propensity for drunkenness and there's a bottle of liquor in front of him, we know that when he reaches for that bottle, he wants to drink it. By his actions, we know his motives. His motive is to drink it. When a robber goes into a bank, when he goes into the bank and goes to the teller with a note, with a threat, we know his intentions. We know his motives. We know he wants to take away as much money as possible and scram. We know that. It is possible to know and judge motives and intentions in many, many circumstances. Not necessarily all circumstances, but it is possible in many of them. Therefore, it is possible to know in many circumstances, whether somebody is malicious. And if somebody is malicious, 
then we ought to pray against that malice and warn other people of the same. We have an example of someone like this. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14. 2 Timothy 4, 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. Do you see we have two groups of people here? We have Alexander, one uh, false teacher named here. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. He did wrong to the godly apostle, and he knows that the Lord will pay him back. He will, the Lord will pay him back. And then he tells the people, be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. Be on guard. You, you watch out for him too. Make sure that you don't listen to him. Make sure you don't give him any influence. Don't pay attention to him. Be on guard. That's a malicious person. Alexander the coppersmith is a malicious person. This is why he depends on the Lord to pay him back. And in his dependence on the Lord, inevitably he would have prayed about this. Paul the Apostle would have prayed about and against Alexander the coppersmith, and then he warned other people. But notice in verse 16, At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. There were many people among the Christians who were timid, who were fearful, whose knees knocked whenever they thought and experienced and expected persecution. It wasn't that they were unbelievers, it's just that they did not have the kind of courage that they should have had in, at that point in their life, at least in the defense of the Apostle Paul. They didn't have it. So does Paul pray an imprecation against them? Does Paul pray for God to curse those believers? No. no notice what he prays in verse 16. May it not be counted against them. May it not be counted against them. This is just as Jesus did in Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Or Stephen says, Lord, may it not be counted against them. Acts 7, verse 60. So we can make a distinction, and we do need to learn to make a distinction between those who are malicious and those who are sinning unintentionally or without malice or in ignorance. There are some people like that. We have to learn to make those distinctions. An eighth objection. We should only pray for people's salvation based on the verses I just cited. Luke 23, 34, Acts 7, 60, or even 2 Timothy 4, 16. We should only pray for people's salvation. That's not true. We will see in many cases, even in the New Testament, that that's not true. Example, 1 Corinthians 16, 22. If anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. If anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. That's a prayer or a wish, a desire for their condemnation. If anyone does not love the Lord Christ, may a curse be on him. That's the, the prayer of the Apostle Paul. Therefore, that prayer and many others in the New Testament will show that no, 
depending on the circumstance, depending on the individual, we need to know, are we praying for their salvation or are we praying for their retribution and condemnation? What are we supposed to pray? And in some cases, it's uncertain. You can pray for both. Pray for both, and God will answer according to his will. The number nine, objection number nine. God wants all saved. God wants every person saved. That's why he created the world. He desires them all to be saved. Every individual, whoever lives, he wants saved to go to heaven. That is not true at all. Because before the foundation of the world, God purposely made hell. He made hell knowing in his knowledge of all things, he knew when he created the world and however number of people he has created, he knew that most of them would reject the gospel message, but he created the world anyways and he created hell to last forever to send them all. Matthew 25, 41. Depart from me, you accursed ones, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25, 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. God created the world this way, so it must not be the case that he wants all saved. Even 2 Timothy 2.10. The Apostle Paul, 2 Timothy 2.10 says... For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. Why did Paul strive the way he did and preach and teach and suffer the way he did? So that those who are chosen may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus. The chosen ones are the ones who are to receive the salvation. And he's working hard so that the chosen ones, whomever they are, because he doesn't know and we don't know, whoever they are, listening to the word of God, that they will believe it. Paul does not expect or want every individual saved in that, in 2 Timothy 2.10. He's not wanting everyone saved. He's wanting the chosen to be saved by his labors. Number 10, objection 10. We should preach the gospel to save all hearers. Whoever is listening, whoever is hearing this gospel, we should preach it, preach the word of God, the gospel, to save everyone who hears. Well, we already heard from 2 Corinthians 2, 14 to 17, that the apostle recognized that in his ministry, there was an aroma of life for some and an aroma of death for others in the preaching of the true gospel. In the preaching of the true gospel, it produced two results. It was a stench to some, and it was a fragrant scent to others. This is what happens, a twofold purpose. Even Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says the same. In the preaching of the word of Christ, in the gospel message of Peter, Peter is also acknowledging this twofold outcome. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7. This precious value, meaning Christ, then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. 
and to this doom they were also appointed. They were appointed to that doom, to that fate or destiny to stumble, reject the message of the gospel. They were appointed for that end. Jesus is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Is that verse not in the Bible? Is that verse not in Psalm 118.22 and Isaiah 8.14 and Isaiah 28.16? Are not these truths all there in those Old Testament scriptures? But they are reiterated and quoted in the New Testament as being true of the gospel message. See, there's one gospel, Old Testament, New Testament. One gospel, one Christ. And this one Christ is a precious value for those who believe. If God has ordained for them or appointed for them to believe, according to 1 Peter 2, 7 and 8. But if God has appointed them for doom and destruction, they will stumble. They will be disobedient when they hear about Christ. There's a twofold purpose, therefore, not one. God never says anywhere, Old or New Testament, that the preaching of the gospel is intended to save everyone who listens to that gospel. That's not true. Number 11, God created us to save as many people as possible. God created us, the world, to save as many people as possible because God loves everyone equally and the world was created completely and solely for our benefit since God loves all of us. He loves every person equally and he created the world for us. He if you were the only one in the world, Jesus would have died for you. You've heard things like this. You've heard things like this. But as I've just said, this is not true. It is not in the Bible. In fact, the proponents of those who, or opponents of this teaching, proponents of love being front and center, and man, the man-centered nature of why the world was created, that worldview you know what, they, they like to capitalize on the word love. That that is God's supreme goal, supreme purpose and priority in creating the world. But I actually contend that their view of God is an idol. And their view of God is actually idolatrous, not only in that sense, but it's also pernicious. And they think that their God is the greatest example of love. Their God. But I say no. Their God is the greatest example of hate and disdain. Why? Because if they say the greatest thing that God wants in his love is for every person to be saved, then why did he create the world knowing that most people would reject the gospel message? Why did he create the world knowing that most people would reject the gospel message and then be thrown into the lake of fire. He should not have created them in the first place, if love is the supreme goal. He should not have created all those people, most of the people who ever live, he should not have created them at all, knowing that they will reject the message and be thrown into the eternal lake of fire. That God is not a loving God. That God does not have love as his supreme goal. There's no way. In fact, 
That's very, very unjust. That's very, very hateful. That's very, very unloving to do so. If love, according to their premise, if love is God's supreme virtue that he wants to manifest towards everyone. It's not true. That concept is not in the Bible anywhere. Number 12. Number 12. I can't imagine any good purpose. I can't imagine any good purpose. That can't be godly. It cannot be godly to pray for a curse or imprecation on anyone to expect God to carry out justice. I can't imagine any good reason. For one, we should not judge the word of God by our fickle and finite human wisdom. We should never do that. Never do that. If you can't imagine it, well then broaden your horizons. Don't put God in a box, as we say. Check the Bible and see what the Bible has to say. And the Bible will, give, it will expand your imagination. And it will expand your wisdom to be godly wisdom. But we may list a few purposes. We may list a few reasons why. A reason why is to glorify God when he performs righteous deeds. To glorify God when he performs righteous deeds. Revelation 19 Verse 1, after these things I heard, as it were, a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. They glorify God. They're singing hallelujah. Hallelujah means praise the Lord. Praise God. Praise the Lord. Another reason is to end the mistreatment of God's name. To end the mistreatment of God's name. When people persecute the church, they are actually maligning and slandering God. When they persecute Christians... They are mistreating God and the name of God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians 1, 5. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. Why do they suffer? Why are they persecuted? For the kingdom of God, he says, for which indeed you are suffering. So when they suffer, they're suffering because on behalf of God. The name of God is associated with the people of God and they're suffering because the people of the world hate God so they take it out on the people of God. Verse 6. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. There, Christ will be the one who meets out punishment on the wicked for maligning God and taking it out on the people of God. Therefore, 
when we pray like this, when we desire justice like this, we are calling for God to end the mistreatment of his name. Further, we pray like this to bring people to repentance. To bring people to repentance. In Hosea 5.15, God says, In their affliction, they will seek me. They will acknowledge me. In their affliction. There's something similar to that in Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4. You have not yet, you believers, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. He says we need to resist sin, and now he says to share God's holiness. More and more overcome our sin by scourging, by God's discipline upon us, by affliction on us, to overcome sin and become more holy like God. In Hebrews 12, this is for believers Affliction leads to repentance, ought to lead to repentance and holiness. In Hosea 5.15, it's unbelievers who need to be brought down and, and humiliated down in the dirts and in the dregs. They need to be placed there before they look up and say, God, you need to help me. Like the prodigal son who had to come to his senses after having to eat the food of the hogs. He ate the food of the hogs and then he came to his own his senses came back to him, and he said that he needs to return to his father's house to bring people to repentance. Isn't that good? So we ought to pray like this. Furthermore, we ought to pray like this to teach God's people what righteousness is, to teach the people of God what righteousness is. Revelation 15, verse 3. Revelation 15, 3. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Sang. Notice here. This song is of one mind. Moses and the Lamb, Christ. Moses and Christ are unified on this doctrine that we're teaching. There's no contradiction between the Old and the New Testament. Moses and Christ believe and teach the same thing on this doctrine. What does the song say? Verse 3. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, you, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Your righteous acts have been revealed. When God meted out punishment, his righteous acts were revealed, and then the people glorify God. They see a manifestation. They have greater clarity, greater understanding of the righteousness of God. 
This is the purpose, to teach God's people what righteousness is. Furthermore, to judge the enemies of his people, to judge the enemies. Revelation 16, Revelation 16, 5. And I heard the, the angel of the water saying, Righteous are you, O uh, you who are and who was, O holy one, because you judge these things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord, the Almighty righteous, true and righteous are your judgments. They deserve the true and righteous judgment of God. It's deserved. So, enemies, unrepentant sinners, deserve whatever God has ordained for them. Furthermore, what uh, uh, further objection. Some people say, number 13, only Jesus, the prophets and the apostles, can and did pray that way, but we cannot and should not. Only Jesus, the prophets and the apostles, but it's not for common Christians. It's not for the rest of the saints. It's only for them, as the argument goes. However, in James chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, and James 5, 16 to 18, James encourages us to pray for justice. He encourages us to pray like this. James is not addressing just the prophets and saying only the prophets could pray this way. In fact, in James 5, 16 to 18, he encourages us to pray like this, and he says, speaking of prophets, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. What's his argument? James' argument was, in order to pray like Elijah prayed. He prayed, Elijah prayed, that it would not rain for three and a half years in the land of Israel, and it didn't rain. Then he prayed that it would rain, and then it did rain. When he prayed that there would be no rain for three and a half years, many people suffered. Both the righteous and the wicked, they suffered. And even Elijah had to leave the land in order to go to a foreign land, in order to be helped by a widow, a desperate widow, and to even for him to minister to her. So, Elijah, as a prophet, he prayed like that. But James' argument is that he had a nature like ours. He's a human and a saint. And because he's a human and a saint, has a nature like ours, we ought to pray like Elijah. Amen. So his office does not mean that he exclusively, in the office of a prophet, that he exclusively can and could pray that way. What it really depends on is whether we are believers. Whether we are believers, human believers. And this is the issue. We can and should pray like that. Number 14. We don't need to practice this. We don't have to practice this. This is only a preference. Only some people can and want to pray this way. Okay, it's all right for you to pray that way. Just don't tell me that you pray that way. Don't let me hear those kinds of words. No, we already heard from 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 that all scripture is inspired by God, which scripture includes the New Testament and much of the New Testament. Many of the passages I've been citing and will cite are exclusively in the New Testament. New Testament issues. Here's a further example. 2 Peter 3, verses 1 
and 2. 2 Peter 3, 1 and 2. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember, you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Here, he calls on us to remember, we ought to remember, should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment. So these are commands. They're not preferences. They're not desires and wishes. They're not a matter of taste. They are commands. The commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. So when the apostles speak in the New Testament, they are doing it by the command of Christ. The command of Christ is why the apostles repeat what Christ taught. This is what we have in the pages of the New Testament. Commands. No preferences, no matter of tastes. It's not as though you have a selection of appetizers on the table and you just pick and choose as you feel. It's not that way. Number 15, people say, do not touch God's anointed ones. You've heard that. We ought not to touch God's anointed. We can't say anything bad about those big uh, mega pastors. We cannot say anything bad about so-and-so. He's a brother in Christ. They're all brothers. You've never met him. So if you've never met him, why do you speak against him? People say, we can't touch God's anointed. That's a misquote of Psalm 105, verse 15. Psalm 105, 15. For one, it's a misquote because they say you can't use the Old Testament. Isn't it interesting? They use the Old Testament when it justifies their wickedness. But when it calls on them to repent of sin, they don't want to quote the Old Testament. Psalm 105, 15. But in context, Psalm 105.15 is talking about God's holy anointed ones. Not those who are pretenders and false brethren and false pastors and shepherds. It's not talking about the false teachers. It's talking about the true teachers. That they should not be confronted in the ways in which people confront them. Both people within the assembly of God and those on the outside of the assembly of God. They have no shame in resisting and confronting the holy anointed ones, the truly anointed ones. That's what the passage is talking about. His holy prophets. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob cited in the verses before that. Number 16. Number 16. Nobody teaches this. I've never heard this before. So if nobody teaches this and I haven't heard this before, then it must be wrong. Really? Just because something is popular, it makes it right? Whether it's popular or whether it's unpopular, that does not determine whether something is true or right. Whether something is popular or not popular does not determine its veracity. Its veracity is determined by the holy and righteous word of God. We have to all discern and figure out whether the Bible teaches it, like the Bereans. The Bereans were unlike those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Acts 17, 10, and 11. The Bereans checked and double-checked in the Bible. Is this what really the Bible says? If it is, then I need to obey it. I need to do what my Lord and Master Jesus Christ expects me to do. That's the kind of attitude we should have. Not whether we've heard it before or not, we need to see what the Bible says about it. Besides, 
Many of these people have heard and seen these verses we're talking about, especially in the New Testament. It's just that they gloss them over. They don't want to make any room for them in their Christian life. In reality, when they say nobody talks about this, well, the Bible does talk about it, and you know very well the Bible has these verses in them. So be confronted with the truth of the Bible, and don't say nobody teaches it. Also, we know that in many places, whether it's within a nation or within a family or in a period in history, just because something is popular does not make it right. It may, in fact, be wrong because it's so popular. Communism, popular in the Soviet Union, was popular in the Soviet Union. Communism is popular in China. It is popular in Cuba. Does communism make it right? Just because most of the people, that's all they know, does it make it right? No, it doesn't make it right. And they should not do it for their own people, and they should not impose it on us either. It doesn't make it right. In one uh, time, in, in, or many centuries, in Indian history, in the nation of India, they used to have law, and it should, used to be legal for those whose husbands died, for those widows to be burned alive on the funeral pyre, on the ashes of their deceased husband. Because the widow can't live without her husband, should not live without her husband. And, and in order for her to attain the, a better life in the next life, reincarnation and transmigration of the soul, in order to experience that, she needs to be set there on the funeral pyre of her husband. As her deceased husband is being cremated, then she, alive, needs to be placed in that fire and perish also. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what you think. This is what's supposed to be done. Does that make it right? Just because everybody says it's okay? Just because it's legal? Does it make it right? No. We can go on and on and on with many examples. Religious examples, secular examples, medical examples, car mechanics, whatever. Everything, anything in life, just because it's popular, does not make it right. And just because you've never heard it before does not mean it's not true. Number 17, love your enemies. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Taken from Matthew chapter 5. In context, we ought not to retaliate. And in context, we do also need to consider our enemies and, and consider whether these enemies are malicious enemies or whether they are ignorant enemies, such as 2 Timothy 4, 14 to 16. This is what Jesus meant in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus did not mean that in 100% of the circumstances throughout all of uh, history, at least from the time of Christ until the end of the world, he did not mean that there would be no room to pray for the destruction of our enemies or that we should not hate our enemies. He did not mean that at all. In a subsequent session, I will show from the book of Matthew that people who think or misinterpret Matthew 5 and think that Jesus meant for us to practice this 100% of the time, actually make Jesus contradict himself. Because in the book of Matthew, we will see many, many circumstances, many, many times when Jesus says things that if you, on the surface of it, look at Matthew 5, it has to contradict Matthew 5. But we know Jesus harmonizes. He does not contradict himself. He meant Matthew 5 in a certain way. He meant love your enemies in a certain way, but he also meant 
hate your enemies or resist them or pray a condemnation on them in other circumstances. He did mean that within the book of Matthew. Finally, I think if we were to crystallize the basic problems, the basic issues, I would call them three sins. What are the three sins that prevent people from submitting themselves to this belief? What are the three sins? One, idolatry. One is idolatry. They have erroneous conceptions of who God is. They don't know the true God. John 17, 3, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life consists in knowing who this true God is. We have to know him. And if we don't know him, we worship an idol. It could be an abstract idol, but it is an idol nonetheless. There are material and immaterial idols that we all have, and we have to resist and break them down, destroy them, demolish them, throw them into the fire, and not the word of God. So quit idolatry. That's our first sin. Our second sin is that we don't understand justice. We call out injustice to God, but we don't understand justice, and we need to pray for justice. How could it be? If it's just one word to describe this whole conference, it would be praying for justice. Why would anybody say it would be sinful or wrong to pray for justice? In fact, the one who objects and says it's sinful and wrong to pray for justice is sinning himself against God. Because he wants justice for himself in daily life. And on the day of judgment, he also would want justice if he has his sober mind. He would say, I want justice on the day of judgment. So if it's good to want justice now, and it's good to want justice on the day of judgment, then why not pray for it and stop objecting and realize that when we do object, we sin against God. And number three, number three, the problem is insolence. Insolence or proud human wisdom, pride and arrogance. You can't imagine. I've never thought of this before and I, it just doesn't sit well with me. It doesn't feel right inside. My heart, my, my heart can't go there. People say these things when actually it's insolence. It's got a superficial sugar coating of compassion and grace and love when actually it is pure pride and insolence. That's what it is. We have to repent of this sin as well. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you will give us a mind to know you, the only true God. That you would give us an ethic that is based on true understandings of justice. That you would also, Father, help us to beat down and suppress our pride. And may we be humble. But to this one will I look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Look to us, Lord. Look to us because this is our prayer that we might be this way. In Jesus' name, amen.